all of a sudden off to my right was this presence, not something that I could see with my eyes, but a presence just two feet away from me. And just, it was the presence of Jesus just filled that room and I just burst into tears. And, and there was no clear view that I could see, but the presence was so strong. Hello friends and welcome to today's video from Jews for Jesus. I'm Jeff Morgan and we have a fascinating video for you today. Dr. James Tour, one of the world's top scientists is joining us and today he'll be sharing his story about how a Jewish kid and leading scientist from New York City became a believer, follower, and lover of Jesus. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. James Tour is with us today and wow, this is a treat. Uh, we're gonna be talking about science and faith, which many people today don't think go together, but au contraire, we will get into that for sure. But before we start, I have to introduce this man. Dr. Tour has a PhD in organic chemistry, TT and WF Chow Professor of Chemistry at Rice University. He's a fellow of Royal Society of Chemistry, fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. He has over 650 research publications, probably more by now. He's been R&D Magazine Scientist of the Year, part of the National Academy of Inventors, member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He has over 120 patents. He started multiple companies. He works in fields ranging from medicine to material science, computer memory, medical devices, and more. He's received numerous honors and awards, named in the top 50 of the most influential scientific minds in the world, and is a passionate Jewish follower of Jesus, or how we call him here in Israel, Yeshua. Dr. Tor, what a pleasure it is to have you here on the channel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is so exciting because both of us are Jewish. Both of us love Jesus, and we're going to be talking about how that works in a logical manner and within a world that demands scientific proof that God even exists. So let's start off with this. How does a Jewish guy like yourself, raised just outside of New York City, come to know Jesus as Messiah, Son of God, and Savior of the world? Well, sometimes these things are, are a little bit of a process. Um, I was working actually on the Hutchison River Parkway um, and, and uh, in a gas station when I was uh, younger and I started working when I was 14 and sometimes I'd work the night shift and people would sometimes come in and hand me a tract and on the night shifts we had a lot of time to, to sit around and, and, and read and, and I would read these tracts and, and they just kind of struck me but I w wasn't really confronted with the gospel until I went to college at the age of 18. And a young man uh, uh, shared with me the bridge illustration of the gospel, where there's man on one side and God on the other. And uh, I was, I was uh, really shaken by it. I was shaken by it because I had become addicted to pornography at the age of 14. Working in the gas station, I found magazines in the trash and uh, uh, and so by the time I was 18, I was, I was a pornography addict. There, were, there was no internet in those days. It was all by magazines. And I went to college and, and he shared with me a verse that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him, I said, I'm not a sinner because in my secular Jewish context, you had to really hurt somebody to be a sinner. You had to right. rob a bank or kill somebody. And I told him, I never robbed a bank. I never killed anyone. How, how could I be a sinner? And then he had me read a verse from Matthew 5, 28 that says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And at that moment, I was deeply convicted. And it's interesting. Why, why should I be convicted? Why should I care what somebody said 2,000 years ago? What does it have to do with me? Yeah. But there's something about the words of Yeshua that just shake a person. And... And it said, you've committed adultery in your heart. I knew adultery was wrong. I, even though I was a secular Jew, I knew adultery was wrong. And how, how could I commit it in my heart? I mean, I haven't done it with my hands. How could I do it with my heart? And, uh, um, and then, and then it, it said to look at a woman with lust for her. I didn't know how to look at a woman any other way. That's the only way I knew how to look at a woman. And so I was deeply convicted and he he shared the gospel with me, and 
But what struck me the most was what happened that semester. I didn't receive the Lord right there. I, he could have probably closed the deal if he had been better at it. But um, I was impressed by people that said that they were born-again Christians. Now, I, I had known that Jimmy Carter at the time had said that he was a born-again Christian, so I'd heard that term, which sound, sounded odd to me. Yeah. But one of the things that struck me, for example, I would go to the, the cafeteria, and there was a group of Christians that had a sitting at this table and when you when you're young and you go into a cafeteria you never want to have to sit alone and they'd say hey Jim come and sit with us so I'd sit with them and what struck me more than anything was their laughter when they were laughing they were never laughing at somebody Mm -hmm. and all of us have been on the receiving end of that sort of laughter and it it hurts but they were never their laughter was never never taking a toll on anybody and these were good people and they were non-threatening and so it opened my heart more. And then I started attending a little Bible study on my floor. But, but then in November 7th, 1977, so, so he shared with me in the end of August, here it is November 7th. Uh, I just got on my knees in my room. And I don't know why I got on my knees. I, I, uh, most Jews I knew stood when they prayed and most Christians sat when they prayed. And I got on my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner and come into my life. And I felt this amazing peace of God drop on me. And this burden of sin that I had been carrying since August about this, this accusation that I was an adulterer uh, just started to lift from me. And then all of a sudden, off to my right, was this presence, not something that I could see with my eyes, but a presence just two feet away from me. And just, it was the presence of Jesus just filled that room, and I just burst into tears. And, and there was no clear view that I could see, but the presence was so strong. And uh, um, I didn't feel afraid at all. I just felt love and acceptance and kindness and forgiveness packaged up and poured out upon me. And I don't even know how long I was there. I don't know how long I was there. I, I just was burst into tears. And it's an unusual thing for me because I I can have a, a good friend, even to this day, a good friend can die and I won't cry for more than 30 seconds and I'm done but I just couldn't stop weeping. And then the next thing I know, I was standing up wiping my face and uh, uh, something happened to me that day. Something happened to me. And then the young man that had shared with me uh, uh, back in August, he lived on my floor. He saw me a few weeks later. He said, Jim, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me on that day. And it changed what I wanted to do in life, how, how I wanted to, the kind of person that I wanted to marry, the kind of career that I wanted to have. Uh, and I just started reading the Bible every day, every day, because this young man shared with me, I said, how can I stay close to God? How can I do this? He said, if you read your Bible every day, you'll stay close to God. If you don't, you won't. And I started reading the Bible every day. And I've been doing this for more than 43 years. And now I start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm in no hurry. I just read pensively and carefully, and, and then I read, pick up where I left off the day before. And then when I'm done in Revelation chapter 22, I start again, and I just do this over and over. I'm in no hurry. I don't try to get done with the Bible in a year. If God wanted me done with it in a year, he just said, get done with this book in a year. I mean, I just I just go slowly, and, and I just read it over and over. So... That was a long answer to a short question. No, I love your answers. Um, I want to talk for a second about that weeping. Um, you and I have similar stories. When I came to faith, I wept for a year, James. I went. I, I literally, I, every day, tears of joy. Yeah. I was the one going to church with my hands up in the front row, just jumping up and down for a year and crying at every worship song. I was so floored. And so convicted all at the same time. And these changes that you're talking about happened to us, through us, in us. It's not like self-help where you go and you go through some steps and you try to exchange bad behaviors for good. I mean, I'm talking behaviors that are wiped out, habits that are erased, and things that are changed. I can so relate to that. Um, But being a Jewish follower 
of Jesus these days is much more common than in the last 50 years, especially in the last decade. You know, Jew Jewish people all over the world are seeking, they're thinking for themselves. Many have become disillusioned by Eastern mysticism, New Age practices, and are exercising the courage to read the New Testament and discover for themselves the Jewishness of this book and who they believe Jesus is, instead of having that decision made for them 2,000 years ago. So another story I found really touching and inspiring was your Jewish mother's journey to faith in Yeshua. Can you tell us a bit, a bit about that? Well, um, my, I, shortly after that, my conversion, I, I came out with it. I mean, I told my, my family, I told my cousins, and, and my mom and dad didn't say much, but I know that it hurt them because they told me afterward that it had hurt them. But my sister had been into things. My brother had been into things. And I thought this, this was a fad that was just going to pass away. Sure. And a couple of years later, I moved into a, a house full of Christian guys that, that, was, that was owned by the pastor of the church. And it was a, sort of a discipleship program. There were two, two men's houses and there was one woman's house. And, and uh, my mom came to visit and... and uh, um, uh, she was she was really struck by all of this. She she really wondered what is this that I am into. And and as a parent now, I can understand her concern. Right. And I said, well, why don't you read the New Testament and and uh, and and see 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 what 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 you think. And um, in fact, I, I took her to church one day. And uh, uh, in this particular church, we would get down on our knees and just worship. And she sat there and she. You know, she was in tears the whole time. And when I got done, I said, I said, you know, you must have been really touched in this service. She said, touched? Why do you think that? She, I said, you were weeping. She says, I'm weeping for you. I'm weeping for you. What, did, did you be in a place like this? I said, well, where should I be on a Sunday afternoon? She said, well, how about on the beach like any other normal human being? And uh, so you can, you can actually hear the Jewishness <laughs> in, that, in that sort of response. And uh, yeah. mm -hmm. so she read the entire New Testament. And very carefully, my mother was a huge rate reader, so she really had a tremendous comprehension. And, and I said, what did you think? She said, I don't blame them for killing Jesus for the things that he said. I mean, who is he to stand up and say to, say to the rabbis what he said, that you're whitewashed tombs? I mean, these men are just trying to help people's lives. And this young guy comes up and starts criticizing them like that. It's no wonder he got killed. And then I said, uh, um, why don't you read the Old Testament? Read the whole thing. And so she did, something that most Jews, certainly secular Jews, have never done. And yeah, she picked it up that. in the book of Genesis, and she read the whole thing. Hmm. And I asked her, I said, so what did you think of that? And, and uh, she had some very strong things to say. And she said, God has obviously warned us over and over again. He warned us. Right. And uh, uh, then it was several years later, uh, after my, my oldest daughter was 15 and she came to visit us with my father and she went up, I remember she went up in my daughter's bedroom and the two of them were in there for a couple of hours. And my daughter was quite evangelistic at that age. She came out, she said, that's quite some daughter you have. And she mm -hmm. started reading the new Testament again. She was reading that along with the case for Christ, along with a, that I had given her, and then along with a, 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 an intervarsity, devo, intervarsity devotional, which I don't even know where she got. And then one day she called me. We used to speak every Sunday, so I called her. I would call her every Sunday, and she got on the phone, and she says, Jimmy, you won't believe this, but, but uh, uh, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I was floored. I said, what I happened? She said, I was, I was reading the Bible, and I was reading the case for Christ, and I was reading about how he was crucified, and it hit me. It mm. hit me. He mm. is the Son of God. Now, I've seen this, Jeff, where people are reading the New Testament, and I tell people, you read the New Testament twice, you become a believer in Yeshua. You become a believer in Jesus. You can't get through that document twice. Uh, sometime during that sequence, and I've seen it with professors here on campus, I mean, it hits them. That yep. document can speak for itself, and it hit, it hit her. Mm. Wow. She, well, talking was, she, was, yeah. she was 72 at the time, actually. Hallelujah. Well, um, talking about evangelistic kids, just today my son calls me. He's, he's, call, he's at school. He calls me from school. And they study the Tanakh here. They study the, the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. You know, and he brings his own 
it's in Hebrew, but it's the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Tanakh and the, and the New Testament together in one book. And so his teacher looks at his book and says, that looks a little bit uh, different than what we use. Can I see it? So she looks through it. She sees there's a New Testament in there and she says, wow, this is really cool. I've always wanted to read the New Testament. Can you bring me one? <laughs> so wow. my son's going to bring her another. We have the same version at home. He's going to bring her that tomorrow. So speaking about kids, when I was younger, I went to Jewish summer camp where we wrapped fill in. We went to Hebrew schools, ate latkes, matzah scramble, bagels and locks. I had by Mar Bitzvah at age 13. I never thought of opening the New Testament. And to be fair, even the, the Hebrew scriptures as well. But in high school, whenever we got uh, to the Christmas songs, because I was in the high school choir, and there were songs that had the name of Jesus in them. And whenever the name Jesus came, I was taught never to say his name. So naturally, I never gave the New Testament a thought. You know, and this is really common, you know, in Jewish secular families today. What, what do you say to those uh, that won't even open the New Testament, that it's a Christian book, it's anti-Semitic, uh, Jewish people should stay away from it? Well, what I had going for me, in a sense, Jeff, and some people would say what I had going against me, mm. is I had spent so little time in the synagogue, yeah. and I didn't have any, you know, I, I, I had no real relationship with a rabbi. They seemed like strange men to me, walking around, mumbling, uh, you know, they were saying their prayers. I didn't know what they were doing. I mean, these right. men walking around mumbling. And and uh, um, so... What happens is, as you know, in the synagogues, you're taught against Jesus. I was never taught against Jesus because I didn't spend much time in the synagogues. So I didn't know to be wary of, of somebody coming up and saying, I'd like to give you an illustration of the gospel. I just told this young man, sure. When right. somebody handed me a tract, I didn't just immediately throw it out. I read it. So, so in a sense, I had that going for me that I, I wasn't... I wasn't uh, taught against Jesus. So generally, when you go through the synagogue, yes, they say, they say negative things about Jesus. There's not a lot written about Jesus in, the, in, the, in the, the Jewish writings. There is some, and generally what's written is not very flattering. Right. Uh, so so uh, um, if you read what, what Jesus said, Jesus was very much like a prophet. I mean, prophets didn't come in and just stroke the leadership and tell them how wonderful they were, they yeah. confronted them. And Jesus, very much like an Old Testament prophet, he is confronting the, the Jewish leadership of his day. And That's he's right. talking about their hypocrisy, no different than, than, than what Isaiah did, Isaiah. no different than what Jeremiah did, no different right. than what the minor prophets were doing. So, so uh, uh, you can read about this, and that is a very Jewish document. If you read the New Testament, I mean, some, sometimes people ask me, how can you be a, being a Jew? I mean, how can you believe this? I'm like, how can you being a Gentile believe this? This <laughs> document is so Jewish. It's so Jewish. I mean, it, it just, it, 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 it's all around the Jewish customs, all around the Jewish holidays, all right. around the things that are happening yeah. in, in Judaism in the first century. And then as you study the Jewish practices of the first century, it just nails it at every yep. point. I mean, what, what people are referring to as, as Gentiles and, and what they refer to them as, as the prostitutes and, and the tax collectors. I mean, this, this, was, this was so Jewish what was happening. So right. I would encourage you to read it because Jesus came and he had a message for us and he had a message for the Jewish people. This message is for us, and it's no different than the message that came through our Old Testament prophets. And yep. if you critically read the Tanakh, if you carefully read that, you will see that the prophets were slamming our people all the time for our waywardness. They were slamming our leadership and our people yep. and warning us, and that's what my mother came out with. She said he warned us over and over again. She was frustrated by how much we had been warned and we did not comply. And the prophets were rejected. The prophets were rejected. And in the first century, the question wasn't, how can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? The question was, how can you be Gentile and believe in Jesus? Just like you said. Um, let, let's, let's move on to some science. Um, being so rooted in science as you are, has science ever shaken your faith? Science has never shaken my faith. Never, ever, ever. When when I had that experience with Jesus in my room, I've, 
I, there's no doubt in my mind, and, and I love the Word of God, every word in the Bible is true. Every word, uh, right down to every jot and tittle, it is true. Everything is true. And, and uh, uh, sometimes my interpretation might be wrong, uh, but, but every word that is written there is true. And the way that I view this is that science chases the universe trying to explain it. Mm. God's Word defines the universe. It defines it. The universe has to conform to what God's Word has said. When I study science, it never has shaken my faith. I build molecules. I build molecular systems. And then when I look at biological systems and I see what chemicals coming together can do in a biological system, I'm just struck with this amazing, amazing structure. And it makes me behold God and it makes me love Him all the more. I'm like, Lord, look at what you have done. This is <laughs> right. amazing. This is utterly amazing. So it's never, ever shaken my faith. I think mm. maybe to the rookie it shakes their faith, but not to me. Not, yeah. It doesn't shake my faith at all. I mm. see the limitations of what humans can do. I see what, what, what there is in, 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 in nature, in this ubiquitous natural system around us. And uh, sure, there's, there, there's, there's ways that you can explain it, but, but you, you want to try to put molecules together to replicate this? It's mm. crazy hard. So it's yeah. never shaken my faith. And I take absolutely every word of the scriptures as absolutely true. Mm. Well, you call the origin of life purely synthetic organic chemistry. What, what do you think of how the origin of life has been explained in public schools, university, and books? Scientists are clueless on life's origin. We just don't know. Rookies think that they know. But as soon as you start getting into the details of this, you're lost. And, and uh, uh, scientists make some money by working in these research areas, and they'll make very bold claims. Even in their papers, they make very bold claims. And those claims are way extrapolations from what they've done. They've done some little thing and they say, this explains the origin of life. And I will just go at that. I said, no, it doesn't. It just doesn't. I mean, when I walk into a room of somebody giving a presentation, their whole tenor changes because they know they can't slosh around with these sorts of bold claims based on the, on the work that they've done. And so what's happened is those bold claims get translated into press announcements People then write textbooks with those bold claims. So the, the, the poor lay public has been thoroughly confused, and it's not just the lay public. There is confusion right up into the academy, right up into the universities, where scientists think that, that the origin of life has been explained. Biologists certainly think so. And then as soon as you start showing them it's, that it's not been explained, they, they, they really come to agreement. Um, you know, I have had many colleagues come to me and say that they've watched my videos on origin of life, and they agree with me. People have watched my whole series and they say, we see nothing wrong, nothing wrong, but please don't use my name. So there's no lack of cowardice in the universities because people don't want to undergo the shunning that, that, that I have undergone, the people who have, who have stood up to these things. But in, in academia, it's like this. Academics are known to be cowards. Academics went along with the Nazis we would hunker down thinking that right. it's not going to inflict upon us and we'll just keep our mouths shut. We went along with, with, with the Soviets. We just kept our mouths shut. The academics are known to be cowards. There are many people, there are many people that have the, 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 uh, the ability, the, 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 the cortex of, of, of uh, a C.S. Lewis and a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but they will never affect their world. Mm. because they're cowards, because they're afraid to speak up. And so they will go along with the status quo, even when they see it. And, and it's, it's such a shame because these scientists see this origin of life is, an pure, is a pure and utter mystery. And they won't speak up because they make their livings, because they make their livings uh, uh, doing research in this area and making bold claims. And if they come out and say, look, this just doesn't work. I have no idea how this happened then things kind of go away for their research. And, and so it's, it's a real problem, and, but it's mainly due to cowardice. It's because there's no courage among the academics. We think mm -hmm. we're really tough. We're not really tough. 
Uh, we, we love our research funding. We love our accolades. We love yeah. our awards. We love our publications to be accepted. And that's the problem. And that's what's going on here. And it translates then into these books in elementary school, these books in high school, these books in the university. And I have even, you know, as I did on, 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 on my, on my uh, uh, YouTube channel, I've, I've quoted these, these uh, uh, surveys that have been taken of how lost the general public is on what's been done in this area of origin of life, just utterly lost. But it all starts with the scientists not speaking up and not speaking up what they know to be true. Okay, <laughs> the simple human cell. I, I don't, don't you love how people use the word simple in front of almost everything? Not so simple. Uh, can you talk about the complexity of a human cell? I won't even address a human cell. Let's go to a very simple cell. Let's okay. go to the simplest cells that are known to exist. They are, have the same complexity as the simplest cells that we have in the fossil record. In other words, there are uh, uh, the, the, the cells that we have, the oldest cells that we have in the fossil record are analogous to our simple cells today. Okay. We already know how simple a cell can be. You say, well, it, it, it's just a piece of, of, of a ribosome. That's nonsense. We already know the structure that a simple cell will have to have because this has been computed by biophysicists. We already know the structures that a simple cell will have to have. You'll need to have something like 200, 205 protein coding genes. You have to have all sorts of functions. You have to have DNA polymerase. You have to be able to make things. You have to be able to extrapolate these things. You have to have a certain number of enzymes. These numbers have been put into place. There is no way and no understanding how that could have happened. And when I say you have about 205 protein coding genes, then you have to have all the amino acids from exogenous sources to come into this. Right. And, and they all have to be in a, a, a chirally pure. They have to have, have high enantiomeric purity. And you have to have that because we know something about chiral-induced chiral spin selectivity that you could not have run on racemic systems. Nothing fits together when you deal with, with racemic systems. Uh, you, you can't have diastereomeric mixtures. There's so much complexity. We can't even make the simplest of cells, not even the simplest of cells, let alone a human cell, which is extremely advanced. Uh, the simplest cells, we have no idea how, that they, how they could have formed. And those who think otherwise really don't understand the chemistry. I'll come right out and say, you just don't understand the chemistry. If you think that, that, that you can form a simple cell, people will, will send to me all the time, oh, here, here's an article where people have made artificial life. And every time, I show them it's not that they've made it. They've taken something that's already living and they've modified it. That's very different. If I take a car and I put different wheels on it, it doesn't mean that I made that car. You know, I, I just modified the wheels. People have gone so far as to modify the genome of a cell. You can go in and, and this is what Craig Venter did. He knocked out lots of different different. Uh, segments within that genome. And then the cell didn't function very well, but it still functioned. People say that's artificial life. Well, you just, you just took a hammer to your car and you pounded on it enough, but it could still start. But uh, you, you think you, you made that car? No, you made it worse is what you did. Hmm. So all of these things, people already start with life. Origin of life means ab initio. From the beginning, you've taken molecules and you put it together. And even the pieces, and I'll even give it to them. I'll even give it to them. I'll say, you don't even have to make all the pieces. You can, I'll give you all the pieces because we can get the pieces from living cells. We can extract the pieces. I'll give them to you, just polymerize and make the cell. Oh no, the polymerization is too hard. Okay, I'll give it to you in polymerized form. And, and, and uh, I'll even give you the entire DNA structure. That if I give you the DNA structure, it's already got the code for life. We have no idea where that structure came from, where the code came from. I'll even give that to you. Now just take these pieces and put it together. I have no idea. We have no idea. We could take all the pieces. We can't even put it together, even if we had all the pieces. But remember, all of this has to happen under a rock someplace or in some ocean vent someplace. I mean, mm -hmm. this doesn't happen. We have no idea. We're utterly clueless on the origin of life. And people will say, oh, Jim Tour, you, you're just talking God of the gaps. I never invoke God mm -hmm. into my, my teachings on, on origin of life. I never do. You do. 
Not you. I mean, the people who accuse me, they do. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 and, and I don't say God of the gaps. I have never said that we will never know. I just mm -hmm. say, as of today, we do not know. And we are very far from knowing. How do I know that we're so far away from knowing? How could I know that? Because what you do is you track how close you are into solving a problem. And what happens is the complexity of a cell gets harder every year. Every year we learn more about the cell and we're like, whoa, I didn't know that. For example, the interactomes, this huge non-covalent interactions. This is, this is a new thing to us. This is only in the last five years or so that we've heard about interactomes and the complexity of these things. And this was not known to us before. And so now the target, the cell has gotten much further away. So we, we were here thinking, and now the cell's gotten much further away. So the, the goalposts have moved further out. And as a result, we can track, we're not getting closer, we're getting further. Mm -hmm. That's how I know we're not gonna solve this anytime soon. All the people who are out there saying, we're just on the verge of solving the origin of life problem, they will all die. Read my lips, they will all die without solving this. And their students will all die without solving this. How do I know? Because we're very far away from solving this. I can't say that we won't solve it in 500 years. I can't say that it, it, it's unsolvable. Some way we'll figure it out. And that doesn't lessen God. That doesn't make God less if we figure this out. We've figured out how, how the genome is constructed. So in other words, if you ask somebody 200 years ago, why is it? that when the parents are tall, their kid is tall, they just say, I don't know. And now we know because all of this is prescribed in the genome and then that translates through RNA to enzymes, which are these little nanomachines which construct us. And that's why when you have two tall parents, the children are generally tall. We know this from the genome. That doesn't make God less. We're just like, wow, Lord, this is how you did it. So right. this information isn't going to lessen God. But as far as the origin of life, we don't know. We are very far away from knowing that I can say. Yeah. Well, wow. 205 protein coding genes in the most simple cell. That's incredible. I, 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 Dr. Tor, I'm an athlete. I've been training for 38 years. We throw words around like carbohydrates, proteins, enzymes, fats, DNA, branch chain amino acids, fatty acids. And, you know, we know about them relatively superficially, but how, how complex are they really? And, and, I mean, talking about making something like that, which is a which is one of the uh, essentials to life. Um, and and when when I say make, it sounds kind of strange because it implies a maker. But can something so complex come from non living, mindless matter? Well, people have tried. Just take carbohydrates. You know, yeah. the carbohydrates are sometimes called sugars, sometimes called saccharides. They're, mm -hmm. It's all the same thing. These are very complex st structures. So you, you can easily have five stereogenic centers. So you can have two to the fifth possible isomers. That's a lot. So you can have 32 possible isomers out of something like this. And then they can fold up in different ways. They can, it can fold up, say, into a five-member five ring. So you can have a glucose fold up into a five-member ring, fold up into a six-member ring. When it folds up into the five and the six-member ring, one of the stereocenters can be alpha or beta. And so it, ha it can reside in all of these different structures. People have tried to make these using uh, uh, um, prebiotic type conditions, prebiotic chemistry, things that would have been available in the prebiotic earth. And it is very hard and they've never been able to make them in a chirally pure sense, meaning in the one-handed sense. Now, once you make them, you have to hook them together. And that's a whole nother problem. I mean, the hooking them together because because you, you can have a glucose molecule, but you have to now string these things together. So if you, if you just take six glucose molecules, six, you can hook those up over one trillion different ways. This is amazing because if you just think of DNA, if you just think of this, the same base, say you have a, 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 a guanine, say you have G. So, so, so how many ways can you hook that up? It's just one way, G, 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 that's it. How many ways can you hook together glucose? Over one trillion ways. Now, a trillion is a very, very big number. Let me give you a sense of how big that is because I don't think people appreciate the size of that number. If, if, if you say, if you say uh, uh, wait a million seconds, that's gonna be 11 days. 
If you say wait a billion seconds, that's 32 years. <laughs> if you say wait a trillion seconds, that's 32,000 years. So mm. from a million seconds, 11 days, to a trillion seconds, that is 32,000 years. I mean, there's a big difference between a million and a trillion. I'm saying 1.2 trillion ways to hook together glucose, just six units, just six units, which is a tiny little saccharide, tiny little polysaccharide. I mean, there are saccharides that are much longer. If you get the structure of these wrong in a cell, every disorder in a cell, this has been written, this is not Jim Tour saying this, every disorder in a cell can harken back to a problem in the carbohydrate arrangement. Mm. Every disorder in a cell harkens back that there is a concomitant or origin of a, uh, of a carbohydrate uh, uh, disorder. You get this structure wrong, you throw off the whole interaction within a cell. How do you hook these together when you have that many combinations? How do you get it right? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And so one of my, my greatest uh, antagonists has, has come back and he says, okay, well, these need enzymes. I, 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 these do need enzymes. Well, if these need enzymes, why don't other things need enzymes? And, and I can show you the, 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 the same problems with that. So this, this is a huge problem. It is a huge problem. People will say, well, if we have an RNA world, just some RNA formed and it, and it duplicated itself. RNA doesn't just duplicate itself. Many people have tried to get RNA to duplicate itself. And in the best prime systems, things that have been designed to duplicate, they've only been able to duplicate about seven to 10% of themselves. That's it, no more. And those that seven to 10% has not been able to duplicate itself anymore. So 7% of something is not a, a duplication of it. And then they'll say, well, RNA is a ribosome. It makes things. Yeah, but RNA is highly unstable. Mm -hmm. RNA, you have hours to work with it. That's why when you look at these mRNA drugs, they are packaged very carefully in a liposome to try to protect it. And even then you have to keep it really cold in order to preserve these things. You add exogenous ions to this, you're in deep trouble because that will catalyze the de decomposition of these things. So you have the whole instability problem. So you have the synthesis problem, the polymerization problem, the instability problem. Every one of these things is a hard, hard problem. Even the lipids, which are the fats, even those are hard. Those all have stereogenic centers. We don't know how to make those in a prebiotic sense. And I've just written an article where, where an article came out a year ago say, saying that here's a prebiotic synthesis of a fat. And I showed it wasn't prebiotic at all. And even, even when he says this, he's taking things from nature and making it. It's, it's just uh, uh, it, it's just sleight of hand over and over again. One of the main arguments for um, atheism or against a creator of the universe is that given the right circumstances, and this relates to what you were talking about just a minute ago, and enough time, life is sure to appear from non-life. I've spoken to many people that are very settled and cozy in believing that given enough time, of course, life can begin and, and evolve on its own. Time is the enemy. Time is the enemy of organic chemistry. When you make something, you have to work it up quickly and deal with it. If a student goes home for the weekend and doesn't work up their reaction, they cease decomposition. Time is the enemy. And the vast majority of time, like say with the carbohydrates, these are all kinetic products, not thermodynamic products, meaning that, that they're in local mini minima. You, you let them go further and they go into more and more stable structures that are not what you want. You have to stop these reactions. And, and, and I have shown this on my series. You know, I say, here's these people's reactions where they're saying they're mimicking origin of life. Look, they stopped it af after six hours because they showed that when you go more than six hours, the yield started going down, the yield started going down and it just drops. And so what happens is, is you get decomposition, even when people make things and store it for a couple of weeks. I mean, you see the decomposition. And so you see these decomposition rates all the time. These products do not stay around. They decompose. People will say, you know, you undergo oxidation. They'll say, well, we didn't have a an oxidizing atmosphere. We had a reducing atmosphere on early Earth. Actually, some people are saying the, the atmosphere of early Earth is actually very close to what it is now. But I'll give you a reducing atmosphere, which means that you had a lot more ammonia. Ammonia is even more degrading on organic molecules than is oxygen. And so, so uh, um, you, you lose either way. So time does not solve it. 
time does not solve it at all. You can't just leave a bunch of chemicals over time. It doesn't do anything but get even worse. So once you've made something, boom, you leave that thing and it's gone. RNA, you have hours. Even Jack Sostek, the, 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 the Nobel Prize winner at Harvard, who works with, with RNA and who is an origin of life researcher, he will say, with RNA, we only have hours. We don't even have days to work with it. You make it, you only have hours before that thing is decomposing. That's the problem with this. And uh, um, remember, hours, days, months, years, that's a twinkling of the eye when we're talking to the, the time spans that people would like to reference on origin of life. Everything would decompose. decompose. So that is not a valid argument. Mm. All right. I, I, I want to talk about the topic of sin, because growing up in a secular Jewish family, there's no there's no concept or discussion of sin. You know, the common Jewish concept outside of religious Judaism is, you know, just try to become a better person, do something good in the world. Why, in your opinion, don't modern secular Jewish people think about sin? Well, I I don't know, but I can tell you that is exactly what was going on in my home. I don't think we ever mentioned the word sin in my no, either. growing up. I mean, it was not a topic of discussion. That's right. why when this young man had me read this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I said, I'm not a sinner. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't even have this idea that I was a sin. So sin is something that, that, uh, that, that again, you have to do something really bad. Now, in the Orthodox homes, I know it's very different. Uh, uh, but the typical secular Jewish home in the United States, uh, I think mine was pretty typical and we never talked about it. Um, I, I can't, I'm not a philosopher, so I don't know why they don't speak about sin. One might argue, well, they, they don't want to be confronted with their sin. They don't want to be confronted with their evil. Maybe that's the case. I'm not a philosopher. It's hard for my, myself to put this in other people's minds. I was only sure. 18. I was, I was, only 18 when I came to the Lord. Mm. So when I, when I think back, it's not like I had, you know, trashed my life and been on drugs and, and been through multiple broken marriages with strings of broken kids sure. that I look back, I say, wow, I really blew it. No, I was just 18 and I had blown enough in my life by the age of 18 that mm. I'm so glad that I got saved the, at the age that I did. I am so thankful forever. I will be thankful to the Lord for interceding on my life at a very young age before I just blew it uh, uh, big time. Because what happens is once a student goes to college, the decisions that they make affect their lives in much bigger ways. And I tell this to students all, all the time. You make decisions and, and it affects your life, but you're now at a stage. The decisions that you make are going to set your life on a course for the rest of your life. They will affect your life much, much more at this point. So, but I, I, I don't know why. Wow. Well, as, as Messianic Jews or Jewish Christians, we are told to study the Scriptures, meditate on God's Word daily. And from within the Scriptures, we're taught this. You know, So when I came to faith in Yeshua through a miraculous series of events four years ago, I instantly began studying the Scriptures to understand my faith, strengthen my knowledge of the Word of God. Um, you know, he, He's left this for us. He's given this to us. And I must say that the more I study and learn, the stronger my faith becomes. And, and yet you have been reading and studying the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, the Tanakh and the New Testament for over 40 years, correct? 44 correct. years? Correct. Uh, how has your reading the Scriptures straight up? I mean, I'm not talking about going into the Sidul, going into the uh, rabbinic interpretations, the, the Scriptures straight up. How has that impacted your knowledge and faith? You know, um, it's interesting because I speak sometimes to Orthodox Jewish friends, particularly in Israel. What I find is that uh, uh, Jews in the United States engage with me less because maybe they feel threatened. Mm. Uh, but when they're in Israel, they no longer feel threatened, and even the Orthodox will engage with me. I will have conversations, and this has happened to me multiple times, conversations with Orthodox Jews in Israel and they break into tears. They break into tears. And I say, well, why are you crying? And they say, because you know all these things just by reading the scriptures, just by reading. And, 
And uh, I've even, I even had, had one say to me, you know, my traditions mean that I have to do so many other things other than to just be able to read the scriptures and enjoy it. You just read it because you enjoy it. I said, that's actually mm. right. I read it because I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm not obligated. I'm not forced to. I right. don't have to do a lot of things around it, a lot of peripheral things. I don't have to. I just read it because I love it. And God speaks through the scriptures. That's the mm -hmm. testimony of the scriptures them, themselves. This is God's words. And God is able to enlighten us. He enlightens us by the power of his spirit. He enlightens us and he gives us understanding. He, cry, he, he, he calls out to a boy named Samuel. And Samuel can hear him. And Samuel learns from the Lord himself. The Lord teaches us through the scriptures, the very words of God I learned from this. I love it. This is why I, I talk all the time. The biggest message that I leave with people is meditate on the scriptures. I tell young people, if you would learn to meditate on the scriptures, you don't need me. God himself will teach you. It says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, this book of the law shall not, it, it, it says, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success. He's told, you meditate on this book day and night, then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll, you'll have success. And I really believe that. You meditate on it day and night. It says, it's, it says when you get into the land, God, God was, was telling Israel, when you get into the land and you get a king, you make sure your king doesn't multiply horses for himself, doesn't multiply wives for himself. I mean, he gives him this list of things that he should not do. And you look at every king of Israel and every king of Judah violated that list. They all had right. lots of wives. And then he says, and here's what he is to do. He is to make a copy of this on a scroll. He is to make a copy of it. And, and, uh, and so as he's making this copy, and they were to view it to make sure he didn't make any mistakes in copying it, and he was to carry that scroll with him every day of his life, and he was to read from that scroll every day of his life so that he would not be lifted up above his countrymen and so that his sons would be able to walk in this pattern along with him. This is the warning that he's given us as Jews. And this is why they were to read that every day. The king was to read that every single day. Psalm 1, it talks about how, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Things he shouldn't do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the path of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. He tells us we are to, to, to make this law of the Lord our meditation day and night, day and night. The scriptures put it two, two ways, day and night, every day. And this is why I read the scriptures every morning, first thing in the morning. I wake up very early, I, I, I pray, and I read the scriptures. Every night before bed, I read the scriptures. I want to do exactly what the Bible says. I want to be like Daniel. Daniel prayed three times a day. I break in the middle of the day since I was an undergraduate, and I will spend time in prayer. I pray in the morning, I pray in the evening, I pray at midday. I want to observe the pattern that is, is revealed to us from these men of God in the scriptures. We are told to meditate on the word of God day and night. I'm telling you, my, my, my fellow Jews, if you do not do this, I urge you to do this. I urge you, meditate on the word of God day and night. He says, you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which uses its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever you do, you prosper. I'm not talking about some American name it, claim it prosperity. I'm talking right. about the prosperity that God talks about, which is a depth of relationship with Him. When you really love God, when you love God, when you understand the Messiah, and you really love Him, everything else fades. You don't care about money th th this, this way anymore. You don't care about ranches and houses and, 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 and places to go. You just love God so much. 
I love him so much. I love the Lord so much. I love Yeshua so much. And, and forever and ever, I will be grateful for what he's done to me, done for me. And he's revealed the Father to me. And, and I see the kindness of God. Yes, I read all these things in the scriptures about, you know, devastation that comes upon people, about judgment that God executes. I don't know God that way. I don't. I know him as kind and loving and, and, and gracious because his love is funneled to me through Yeshua. It's like this prism it just funnels goodness and kindness to me through Yeshua. Kindness, that's all the only way I know him. It's like a, a, a grandchild. There's, his, his, their grandfather might be some great general that devastates the enemy, but they don't know him like that. They just climb up on his lap and, you know, climb on his shoulders right. and jump all over him. That's the way I feel with God because mm. of what Jesus has opened up to me. I only know kindness and graciousness. This whole idea of meditating on the scriptures, if you will meditate on the scriptures, you will be fine. Psalm 112 says, uh, Psalm 119 verse, verse 97 says, says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Yeah. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation. And I understand more than the age because I've observed your precepts. It says, I'm going to have more insight than all my teachers. And it doesn't just say your Bible teachers. I believe every word in the Bible is true. He says, mm -hmm. you'll have more insight than all your teachers if you make this word of God your meditation. I have meditated on this word of God. I've meditated on this word of God. Every day for over 43 years, I've done this every day. I'm telling you, telling you every day. There may have been one day when I had the flu that I slept more than 24 hours. I, there may have been a day, but I'm just telling you every day of my life, I do this. This mm. to me is my life. This is my life. It's Moses. Moses, after 40 years of instruction in Deuteronomy 32, 40 years of instruction, he says, he's, he, he's, he, it says after he finished, finished speaking all these things to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, even all the words of this law, for, and, and that you shall teach to your children. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. It's not an idle word for you. It's your life. This book, this, these scriptures are our life. You go without this. You go without your life. This mm. is our life. The scriptures are our life. Mm. And, and this is what he has for us. This is what he has for us, this, this word that he has for us. And if, if you don't do it, do it for your children. It's going to bless your children. It's going to bless your children. It, it says, it says it, of, of the, in, in Psalm 112, verse 1 and 2, it talks about how when we, we delight, we make this word our delight. When we delight in this Lord, word, it says, and his descendants shall be mighty on earth. The one who delights in the Lord, his descendants shall be mighty on this earth. You want your children to do well? I urge you, meditate on the word of God every day, every day. Do you know what every day means? Every day means every day. You meditate on the word of God. You make this word of God your meditation. There is great blessing. There is blessing upon blessing that is shared with us by making this word of God our meditation every single day. That's why I start in Genesis chapter 1 and I work all the way through to Revelation 22. I'm done. I start again. And I'm in no hurry. I just say, just like, like, like uh, uh, Eli told Samuel, just say, your servant listens. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Lord, speak to me through this passage. Your servant yeah. listens. Lord, I'm listening. Speak to me. And he speaks. God speaks. Go figure. God answers prayer. He speaks. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Dr. Tor, I've been, I've been meeting with um, three Israeli men over the last few months. And we sit down and we read the scriptures together. And it's, it's incredible when you see their eyes open and they look at the scriptures. And just like you were saying, it's all there. It's all there. And these people, two of them came out of religious lifestyle, out of religiosity. They look at the scriptures. There it is. It's all there. Now, you have made yourself available for one-on-one -on -one conversations with anyone who is a, is, is a non-believer or is seeking that wants to hear more about Jesus. Where can people reach you, Dr. Tor? Okay, so for anybody who is not a believer in Yeshua, for people who do not believe that he has risen physically from the dead, 
Mm-hmm. I will meet with you one-on-one by Zoom. You can just send an email to tour, T-O-U-R, at drjamestour, tour at drjamestour.org, tour at drjamestour.org. And I will respond back, usually within a day or two, I will respond back to you. And, and uh, I'll just confirm, you're, you're, you're not a believer in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then I'll set up a Zoom conversation with you. And I do this all the time. And, and uh, um, uh, just be prepared to get saved. Because <laughs> more than 90% of the people that I speak with, in that one meeting, they get saved. They give their lives to Yeshua in that Hallelujah. very same meeting. And, and uh, uh, I urge you to do that. And I just tell you, I just, I'm just going to tell you my story about why I believe. This is, this is to tell you about why I believe in the physical resurrection of Yeshua, that he has risen from the dead, and why I believe. It's not to engage in scientific conversations and also this is just for me to tell you. You want to hear my, my, my story one-on-one, my personal story about why I believe and discuss this with you, the evidence for the resurrection, then I'll be glad to meet with you. And I have done this with people and I will continue to do it with people. And I, and I urge my, 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 my Jewish brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. I urge you mm-hmm. to pick up your scriptures. I want you to read from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through Isaiah chapter, chapter 53. Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through, keep reading, and then start in Isaiah 53 and write, read Isaiah 53. And the reason I say that is this. I w- was once with a, a, a very gracious man in Israel who was a tour guide. Uh, uh, he gave me a free tour of, uh, he took me to uh, uh, Herodian, this, uh, this uh, area where, where, where King Herod is buried, a place I had not seen. And we had a discussion. It was clear because he was a tour guide. He knew, he knew the, the, the Christian story as well because very, very often they, they, they have to take Christians out as well. And I said, you know, the scriptures themselves, our Tanakh testifies, testifies that Yeshua is the Messiah. He says, I just have never seen that. So we went over his house. He had me to his home that night. We went to his home and we sat down. And I said, I will start reading from the, New Te- from, from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh. I will start reading in my English Bible. You read along in your Tanakh and we'll just start reading. We started reading in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, 13 into Isaiah 53. We got halfway through this chapter. And do you know <laughs> what he did? He said, enough. And he closed the book. And he wouldn't discuss it any further. Mm. It hit him so hard. Yep. That absolutely smacks of Yeshua. Mm. That's why I urge you to read it. It's in your scriptures. It's already there. It's a passage that's avoided by so many. Yep. Don't avoid it. Read it's called it. The for, yeah, it's Read called it. the forbidden chapter in many in many places. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it just makes you want to read it even more. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Dr. Tour, um, so you said tour at drjames.org, is that right? No, or James tour, at doc- tour at, at drjamestour, drjamestour.org. Tour at drjamestour.org, yeah. and I will respond back. You Sounds good. That. I'll be putting a link to that in the description okay. and okay. Uh, along with your uh, YouTube channel as well. Um, so to those that may not contact you after that wonderful invitation, do you have anything else to say? Just some last words, people out there that are watching this right now, especially some Jewish people that might be watching this. Yeah, look, I love the Jewish people. I really love the Jewish people. Me too. And I want so much for you to experience what I have experienced. If you read the scriptures, you will do very well. You can, you can read, start by reading in your own scriptures, in the Tanakh. Read Isaiah 52, 13, through, through Isaiah 50, all the way through Isaiah chapter 53. Just read yeah. that and say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me through this book. And then pick up a New Testament and start to read that. When you start to read in, in, in the first book is, is the book of Matthew. It's going to be like, like you, you'll read these genealogies. You just go, I didn't First, verse, first yeah, verse of Matthew it, just, just, I mean, it, it doesn't get any more Jewish than that. Yeah, it just screams out the genealogies of, yeah. uh, uh, going all the way back. And you just see the Jewishness of this book. You pick up the gospel according to John. John is just screams out, it's, it's, it's the book of Genesis. 
chapter one. You yep. know, you, you're going to see this. You're going to see the parallels in this. And so I ask you, just read the New Testament. You don't need me. If you would read the New Testament, just read it and think about this person and say this, Lord, if this is of you, speak to me. Mm. Speak to me. And he will. He will speak to you through that book. If you do get through the New Testament without receiving Yeshua, I ask you to read it a second time. You will not get through it a second time without giving your heart to him. And then you will experience exactly what I've experienced in my life. And I invite you to, to hear more on my YouTube channel, Dr. James Tour. You go to YouTube, type Dr. James Tour, you get to that YouTube channel, you'll hear, hear more. And uh, uh, I just pray, I pray to God that you get to know him like I do, a God full of love and kindness and graciousness. Mm, amen. Amen. Dr. Tor, thank you for that invitation to uh, all that are watching. And also at, at Jews for Jesus, we'd like to invite you to reach out to us as well. You can speak with us anonymously by going to our website, jewsforjesus.org. The link is also below. And jumping on a live chat with us, we are here to talk with you and answer your questions. We love hearing from you, even if you have objections. Dr. Tor, thank you so much for your time, and God bless you. Thank you. Jews for Jesus is a nonprofit organization that exists to support you as you explore life with faith in Jesus. We facilitate Jewish community all around the world, as well as provide spiritual care and local services. We also raise awareness about the fact that for thousands of years, there have been Jewish people like us who have embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And even though he was possibly the most famous Jewish person in all of history, there are still many Jewish people who have never had the chance to be exposed to the teachings of Jesus. And that's something we seek to change. For more information or to chat with us live and sign up for our newsletter, check us out at jewsforjesus.org or on social media at Facebook and Instagram.